One of the things that I've always admired about Krista as a mother um, is that is no matter how spontaneous she is, no matter how much for her variety is the spice of life, she has deeply ingrained in our family a sense of tradition. Our family operates on the structure of tradition, both large and small. We have annual traditions, like um, going bowling on New Year's Eve or opening camping season at Letchworth State Park in New York or doing an advent calendar as a family where every day in December we do something to get ourselves ready to celebrate Christmas. But we also have small traditions, small rituals that are meaningful in our family. We have snack and chat where every day when the girls get off the bus coming home from school, we sit around the dining room table, we have a snack together and we talk about how everybody's day was or even the simple act of saying to each of the girls every night, good night, I love you, BFF, best friends forever. They say that traditions have a way of molding people and communities. They have a way of shaping our understanding of our identity. They have a way of bonding the relationships of the people who participate in them. They pass along values and they form lasting memories, all of which help us become the people that we eventually become. And this is kind of what we've been looking at last week and again this morning in our study of the book of Exodus. Last week, we looked at the climactic event of the Exodus narrative, the 10th plague, where God directly intervenes in the life of Israel and sets them free from the powers of sin and evil and death, sets them free from slavery to become people who love and worship and serve God in the freedom of the new life that God is providing. We saw how every year the Jewish community commemorates and celebrates that event in the Passover festival, where they recreate the Passover meal and they reenact the Passover rituals and they retell the Passover stories so that they can re-experience for themselves the saving love of God and they can re-embrace the identity that comes from belonging to God. And we talked last week about how this tradition of worship on Sunday mornings does the same thing for us as followers of Jesus. It's the place where we remember and re-experience the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, which saves us from the forces of sin and evil and death in our lives so that we can love and worship and serve God and ourselves and each other and the world in the freedom and new life that God provides by the Holy Spirit. And this week, as we press on into Exodus chapter 13, which I hope many of you stopped to read before watching this talk, we discover two more traditions that became a part of Israel's national life, all tied to this Passover event that helped them understand, be formed into the identity of who they were as God's people. And I think as we look at these two traditions this morning, we will discover 
um, for ourselves as followers of Jesus, ways in which God wants us to embrace our identity and be formed into the people that have been rescued by Jesus. And so in Exodus chapter 13, verse 1, it says this, The Lord said to Moses, Dedicate to me all your oldest male children. Each first offspring from any Israelite womb belongs to me, whether human or animal. The first tradition is the redemption of the firstborn, whereby God claimed ownership of every firstborn male in all of Israel, Israel, whether human or animal. God claimed the firstborn as God's own. And then Israel would, each family would redeem that firstborn child by a sacrifice in the tabernacle or the temple, a sacrifice in worship. And then they would receive their firstborn back as a gift to their family. You you have to understand in the ancient world, throughout the ancient world, um, firstborn male children were a gift from God. In a world where inheritance and the legacy of family can only be passed on through male offspring. Your first male offspring was a sign of God's blessing, that God was giving you this gift so that the legacy of your family would continue into the next generation. That firstborn male was celebrated, given an elevated status, received double the inheritance of all the other children but also had an expanded responsibility to be the man of the house when something finally happens to the father and to be the one who took the responsibility to continue the family legacy for generations to come, to be the one who ensured that the father's will was being done on earth. Now, let me just say as someone who is neither a firstborn male, nor do I have a firstborn male. I'm thankful that our society and our community in particular is determined to leave this kind of patriarchy behind. But for Israel, there was something deeper than just celebrating the gift of a firstborn male, something symbolic that was going on at the same time. In Exodus chapter four, chapters earlier, it says this, then God is talking to Moses. He says, then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my oldest son. I said to you, let my son go so he could worship me, but you refused to let him go. As a result, now I'm going to kill your oldest son. Now, I talked last week about how to read passages like this where God is said to be committing unthinkable acts. And if you didn't hear it, you can go back and listen to my comments last week. But what I want us to see this week is the symbolism of what is going on here. That God is saying that Israel is God's firstborn child. The gift that God receives, the one that God redeems by the sacrifice of the 10th plague of all the firstborn children in Egypt the child that then God receives back and who is responsible to become a blessing to the entire human family. And every time an Israelite family redeemed their own firstborn, they were reminded of their identity as God's firstborn, as the ones that God had redeemed through the sacrifice of death and the ones who now had a responsibility to perpetuate the legacy of God the Father's will on earth. 
for generations to come. That's the first tradition. The second tradition is the tradition of the festival of the unleavened bread. Exodus 13 goes on to say, you must eat unleavened bread for seven days. The seventh day is a festival to the Lord. Only unleavened bread should be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread and no yeast should be seen among you in your whole country. The passage is talking about the seven days that happen after the Passover celebration. The night of the Passover, God required Israel to um, eat a special meal that consists of a roasted lamb whose blood protected Israel from death. And then um, along with the lamb, they would eat unleavened bread, excuse me, and bitter herbs. And that in the Passover celebrations every year in the generation that would follow right up to the present day, this meal would be recreated year after year, the lamb, the bread, and the herbs to recreate what God did on that first night and to re-experience it for themselves and to re-embrace their identity as God's rescued firstborn son. But eventually, tied into that Passover meal, there was a festival of, pass- of unleavened bread, where for the seven days that followed, the only bread that they could eat was unleavened bread. Bread baked without yeast. Because on that first night, when they were making this meal, they had to make it and eat it in a hurry. They had to make it and eat it ready to go, dressed to travel because God was going to redeem Israel at any moment. So you didn't have time to wait for the yeast to rise and to bake the bread that way. You had to bake it without yeast so that you would be ready to go when the moment came. And they commemorated that by a festival of unleavened bread where for seven days they would eat only bread made without yeast. In fact, they would remove all the yeast from their homes. And on those seven days, no work was to be done on the first day or the last day to commemorate the fact that the work of slavery had stopped because God had rescued them. And now they could enter into the rest of being God's firstborn child. And it says in the text that anyone who refuses to participate, anyone who refuses to remove the yeast from their home, is refusing to be a participant in God's saving activity, to be refusing to be a participant in the rescued and redeemed community. And therefore, if they would not remove the yeast, they would be removed from the community of Israel. These are the two traditions the redemption of the firstborn son, and the festival of the unleavened bread. And both of those traditions in their own unique way were ways to re-experience God's saving love and re-embrace their identity as God's rescued people. And I think both of those traditions have something to teach us about who we are in Jesus when we gather together to celebrate in worship every Sunday morning. You see, by the time you get to the New Testament, the idea of the firstborn son has been completely rewritten to apply to Jesus. In Colossians chapter 1, it says this, Jesus, the son, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. 
According to the Apostle Paul, God's one and only Son, Jesus, is the firstborn of all creation, the one set to inherit the entire world in order to behave as a blessing towards the entire human family. Just as the firstborn in in Israel needed to be redeemed by a sacrifice, Jesus, the firstborn, offers himself to be the sacrifice through the life and death and resurrection that he dedicates to God to declare that his life fully belongs to God. And as the result of that sacrifice of redemption, Jesus is given as a gift back to the human family to perpetuate God's legacy of life and love throughout the world. Jesus, we gather together to worship, to remember and to re-experience Jesus as the firstborn son who is given back to us by his life and death and resurrection to perpetuate the legacy of God's life and love in us. We come to re-experience the truth that because of Jesus, the firstborn son, we are all children of God. In Galatians chapter 4, the apostle Paul writes, but whenever the fulfillment of the time came, God sent the son so that we could be adopted. Therefore, you're no longer a slave, but a son or daughter or child. And if you are his, God's child, then you are also an heir through God. The Apostle Paul says, you, we come together in worship and we re-experience the fact that we, because of Jesus Christ, his life and his death and his resurrection, we are no longer slaves to sin. Sin no longer controls our lives. We are no longer enslaved to injustice and oppression. Injustice no longer has the last word on our lives, either as perpetuators or victims. We are freed from the forces of death. Nothing can rob us of the fullness and abundance and joy of the light and the life God gives us through Jesus by the Holy Spirit. Paul would be quick to add, we are also not slaves to God. Sometimes he uses that language to talk about our commitment to voluntarily give our whole lives in service to God unconditionally. But Paul reminds us we're not God's slaves. We don't work for God. We're not working to try and earn or deserve God's love and approval by our goodness or our religiosity. Instead, we're no longer slaves, but children. Adopted because of the firstborn to be God's children, loved every bit as much as Jesus, and receiving every good thing that God has poured out on Jesus because Jesus pours it out on us. And because we are God's children, Paul says, we're not slaves, we're heirs. We actually join Jesus in inheriting the world and in living out the responsibility to perpetuate the legacy of God's life and love throughout the world. We are no longer slaves, we're children of God. And as children, the festival of the unleavened bread reminds us, as children... We have the responsibility 
to live like children. By the time the idea of unleavened bread and yeast makes it to the New Testament, it enters the New Testament as a symbol for sin. The Apostle Paul again in 1 Corinthians 5 says this, clean out the old yeast so that you can be a new batch of dough given that you're supposed to be unleavened bread. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So let's celebrate with the feast of the unleavened bread of honesty and truth, not with the old yeast or with the yeast of evil and wickedness. Symbolically speaking, the Passover comes over into the New Testament and we recreate the Passover meal in worship. Jesus is the sacrificed lamb whose blood protects us from sin and evil and death. And we become the loaf of unleavened bread. We individually, but as a community together. The Apostle Paul will say later in 1 Corinthians 10, there's only one loaf, and that loaf is the church. The yeast, we are an un, a loaf of unleavened bread. The yeast is symbolic of sin and wickedness and evil. And Paul says that's the stuff that we have to remove from our lives and from the community. Every thought or attitude or word or deed that is not deeply rooted in a love for God and a love for ourselves and a love for each other and a love for the forgotten and the ignored, a love for our enemies, a love for the world, a love for the planet. Anything that doesn't come out of our out of love, needs to be removed from our lives so that we can be a new loaf, a new community, so that we can become a new kind of child of God, one who resembles our big brother, Jesus. In Romans 8, the Apostle Paul writes this, we know that God works all things together for good for the ones who love God. God decided in advance that they would be conformed to the image of God's son. That way God's son would be the first of many brothers and sisters. The apostle Paul says, this is the goal. As God's children adopted into God's family, we remove the yeast of sin and evil and wickedness of everything that doesn't originate in love so that in ever-increasing ways, our lives can look more like our big brother Jesus. We can radiate the life and the love and the presence of God into the whole world as individuals and as a community and everything in our lives is working towards that end. Whatever you're experiencing now, if it's hard or painful, God has not inflicted this on you. But God is at work, even in this, to transform you into someone who reminds people of your brother, Jesus. Friends, this is what we experience. This is what we embrace when we gather to worship together as a community. That our big brother Jesus, through his life and death and resurrection, has offered himself as a sacrifice to God and has been given back to us as a gift, not only for us, setting us free from sin and evil and death, to love and to worship and serve God and others in the freedom of the new life that the Holy Spirit provides, but as a gift 
to the whole world. And we're invited to enter in as God's children, to cut out of our lives the sin that disrupts God's purpose for us and to be shaped into the image of our big brother Jesus, which is always only ever the image of love. Friends, this is who we are. And this is why we gather. This is who we gather in order to become. This is who God says you are and nothing else. So let's enter into the spirit of worship because of Jesus, for Jesus, as the children of God to be transformed into the image of Jesus. Let's make this the reason we come. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, without you sending your Son to sacrifice himself for us so that he could be the first among many brothers and sisters, we would have nothing to celebrate. But we embrace this life that you've given us freely by grace through faith. And we walk in it in faithfulness and love. Thank you for who you say we are. May we re-experience the truth and re-embrace it for ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.